0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just twenty five dollars a month, taxes and fees included. That's right, twenty five a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Hello and welcome to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. And today we're talking about a huge part of the Democrats' spending bill that hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, long-term care. Millions of Americans rely on Medicaid, not just for doctor's appointments and medications, but also for long-term care. That can take the form of nursing homes or group homes, but also home care where skilled staffers visit and assist with things like uh, getting dressed, uh, making meals, helping you work, uh, everything that you need to live a full life. Uh, But for years, Medicaid's long-term care services have been underfunded, and they've been focused on institutions like nursing homes and group homes at the expense of home-based options that grant disabled and elderly Americans more independence in their lives. The result is millions of people are not getting the services they need, and millions of caretakers are doing unpaid work on behalf of loved ones. Joe Biden has a $400 billion plan that he hopes will help fix this situation, and disability and elder rights advocates have been pushing hard for a new investment in long-term care as part of Democrats' spending bill this year. Mia Ives-Rubley is a longtime disability rights activist, a co-organizer of the Women's March, and director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. We asked her to explain how long-term care works now and how we can make it work better. Mia, thanks so much for joining us.
3: I am so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: So let's start really, really basic. And, and this is very elementary for, for people who might be familiar with this, but just to get our, our fundamentals. So we're talking about long-term care and also about a subset of long-term care uh, called Home and Community-Based Services or, or HCBS. Can you explain for us what each of those terms mean and, and how they relate to each other?
3: Long-term support services, LTSS, uh, is basically a, a, a wide variety of types of services that are provided for individuals who have significant disabilities. It's sort of like an umbrella term for a, a, a wide variety of services. So home and community-based services is a subset within that. And it is basically a subset of services that are attempting to provide individuals with services that help keep them out of institutions or other isolated areas and and helps individuals live within their community and oftentimes within their homes when we're looking at home and community-based services, we're looking at a wide variety of services, including skilled nursing care, occupational speech and physical therapies, dietary management, durable medical equipment, case management, personal care, hospice care, respite care, senior center services, home delivery meal programs, home modifications, legal services, and even uh, employment-based services that can include things like case management and job coaching. It's not just sort of your prescription, personal care, assistance that are in the home, helping individuals get dressed, et cetera. It it covers a wide, expansive services.
2: And do we have a good grasp of of how many people in the US sort of need services like this and and what share of them are getting them right now?
3: About 3.2 million people could benefit from an expansion for home and community based services. We know that over 820,000 Americans are currently on the wait list. And this is just individuals on the wait list. This doesn't include individuals who are receiving sort of substandard care or individuals who haven't even been able to get on the wait list.
2: So, how long can those wait lists be? And, and what does being on one of those wait lists do? To sort of a person and a family and and their sort of ability to, to get care they need.
3: So we've heard a lot of stories from people personally affected by these wait lists. And we've heard instances of people waiting fifteen to twenty years for eligibility for services and some individuals who haven't even been able to get on a wait list because the wait list is so long, right? And so we're while people are on these wait lists, we're seeing things happen like individuals are getting stuck in congregate settings, which means that oftentimes these individuals feel neglected. They feel like they are outside of the community and that they don't get to make decisions on their lives, right? Because a lot of these congregate settings have bedtimes and tell people whether they can go out in public, whether they are able to get a job. You know, these settings are extremely restrictive. And I I used to work at a place called vocational rehabilitation, where I would work with certain individuals who were languishing in in group home settings and they talked to me about how much it affected their mental health and their outlook on their their future because they felt like they were stuck and that they weren't allowed to do what they wanted to do in life. And so we're also seeing in terms of families who who don't send their the their loved ones into into congregate settings. We're seeing individuals, particularly women and women of color who are not able to go and work, that they are spending a lot of unpaid time providing care for, for their loved ones. And while, you know, they, they love their family, they're not, they're not able to do the things that that other families are able to do in terms of being able to get a job and be able to, you know, support their family. And so we're seeing families fall farther and farther behind when they have family members who have a disability and require that significant level of care. So we're seeing it, it ripple throughout families in terms of their, their out- economic outlooks, in terms of their ability to, to to care for the the whole family unit um, and so these wait lists are, are are causing real harm to communities in general and and the more that we can reduce this the more we can get people back into their daily lives of, of being able to work and help their families support one another
2: and so how how is this sort of care provided in the U.S. right now? What is our our kind of financing structure for for most people in this kind of situation?
3: When we talk about home community-based services, we're actually talking about a waiver program, right? So there's a lot of individuals who receive these types of services outside of Medicaid. But when we're actually targeting what were called home and community-based services, we are talking about basically a waiver system. And it means that individuals who are on Medicaid or who are eligible for Medicaid can request to receive these services through a waiver program. So a lot of times when we're talking about LTSS, which is the long-term support services, we're talking about institutionalization, nursing homes, group homes, and other institutions of places where people receive care or quote unquote care. <laughs> um, I know that's a bit shady. Uh, but anyway, um, we, no, we know that unfortunately, Medicaid has this sort of bias towards institutional care. So you have to apply to a certain type of waiver in order to be able to receive these services in the home. And so that means that, you know, most individuals who who are receiving this structured type of care are getting it through Medicaid. Medicare does not cover home and community-based services. I know that there are a lot of individuals who who are pushing politically for it to cover it, but they don't. Now, there are individuals who can receive specific services through private insurance, and some individuals who are well-off enough to be able to pay through it out of pocket. Uh, but the type of care that we're talking about right now is through Medicaid.
2: Yeah, so th- this gets to an important part of this that I wanted to talk to you about, that the people think of Medicaid as an entitlement, that that if you you fit the description for it, you you are entitled to services. And there are a couple ways in which that's not true for, for long-term care, which we'll get into, but... What is it about Medicaid that makes people have to spend down all their savings and and then sort of what is it about Medicaid that gets it so makes it so hard to get home and community-based services as opposed to being stuck in a nursing home or other institution.
3: So all Medicaid services are at least in general uh, Medicaid services are based on your asset limits and on income. Now that varies widely by state, again, because uh, federal dollars actually match state dollars when we're talking about funding the program. And so states have a lot of sort of leeway in in how they can decide who is eligible for Medicaid services, right? And so for most individuals who have a disability, uh, a lot of them can be eligible as children, but lose eligibility status as adults. And so there's just a wide variety of sort of eligibility standards in each state. And it also depends on certain states who have accepted the increase in Medicaid dollars for coverage of low-income individuals. And the states who have not done that um, have much stricter requirements for Medicaid.
2: So we've, we've talked about waivers. And so if, if I'm understanding the, the structure correctly, Medicaid is, is generally, if you're eligible, willing to pay for institution-based care, but you need a waiver to get care outside of institutions. How does that affect lives for, for disabled and elderly people who don't want to be in institutions, who want to stay in their own homes and, and have that kind of autonomy?
3: So a lot of states have a certain amount of slots available for home and community-based services. And a lot of it is based off of sort of how much they're willing to put into home and community-based services. I believe um, the last estimate that I had seen was around 57% of uh, Medicaid dollars is spent on home and community-based services in terms of long-term support services, while the rest is going to institutional care. So, you know, what we're looking at is, is basically that individuals are, are put on a wait list if they don't have enough spots open and available. And some of these spots are reflected on on how many home and community-based service providers are available in the state as well. Um, So there is a bit of, you know, a supply and demand sort of issue of not having enough people available to, to actually provide that care. In North Carolina alone, we're looking at 14,400 people who are on the waitlist and in places like I, I believe Texas is the largest one with 385,000 people on the waitlist but then we're looking at places like New York who don't have a waitlist technically but you have to wait for certain services because there's not enough providers available or there's not enough funding for the services at that time.
2: Yeah, let's talk a bit about, about sort of the state of providers, since this is, this is an issue where there's an interesting sort of coalition between people advocating on behalf of consumers uh, or, or people who need services like this and people advocating on behalf of providers, people like uh, Asian Poo uh, who work for, for caretakers. Uh, and there's a lot of other parts of politics where you you, you see those those two clashing. And this is a, an interesting area where where you see some coalitions. So sort of what is this sort of state of the workforce working on, on long-term support services right now? And and sort of what what are some of the problems in getting a, a large skilled workforce to, to support people who need these services?
3: The biggest reason why this sort of coalition has been created is because the disability community has definitely seen that there is just not enough service providers available to to provide the, the needed personal care and the in-home care that they need. And part of this is because a lot of these individuals are getting paid minimum wage. Um, these individuals are often contracted through an agency who employs many of these individuals by either contract or part-time work. So these individuals are getting literally $7, $8 an hour to do this very labor-intensive work. We're talking about individuals who are picking up adults out of bed, helping them get dressed, helping them shave, helping them brush their teeth, getting their meals prepped, all of this different like care and assistance. And we are seeing, you know, individuals who provide uh, home-based care and personal care actually have higher rates of injury than than a lot of the other different jobs out there. And it's actually one of the more dangerous jobs and, and environments for individuals to to be working in because they are working in people's homes and people's communities, which means that there's not a lot of, you know, enforcement of OSHA rules, right? So we're seeing a lot of burnout and a lot of turnover and less skilled individuals who are are taking these jobs who, who don't have much training. And so that's causing a lot of constraint for the program. We can see issues of, you know, neglect. We can see issues of just not enough hours in the day for individuals to get covered by services. So there's a lot of these constraints. And so that is why union organizations and worker organizations have decided to, you know, coalesce with the disability community to ask for better wages, to, to help those individuals and disabled people see that as as a big win because not only does it help ensure that they get better trained individuals, it makes sure that those individuals are cared for, so that you know they can provide better care for for the individuals receiving home and community based services.
2: I once reported out a story on on social security disability, and one of the people I talked to who was who was receiving it um, had was injured and disabled because she had sort of wrecked her back uh, trying to lift people in nursing homes as mm-hmm. a as a medical assistant. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was a very concrete example of we treat these workers poorly, and in so doing, it means we have more people who need these services that we're not providing. <laughs> <Uh-oh>.
0: <laughs>
3: exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, we actually saw that a, a good percentage of the individuals who work within this field actually receive – Public assistance because they aren't getting high enough wages.
2: One sort of big value question that I wanted to ask you about. So I, I also have family members both on on sort of Medicaid waivers, getting getting home and community based care right now, and and in more traditional institutions and, and nursing homes mm-hmm. and the like. And I imagine a lot of listeners, especially listeners who might not have as much experience with sort of disability justice as an issue might not kind of share the, the sort of intuition or value that, that is very common in, in disability justice, disability rights, that it's better to be in, in your home, in a community than, than in an institution. They might think of, of these places as imperfect, but, but sort of necessary parts of society. Walk me through why you and other sort of disability advocates are, are kind of skeptical of, of institutions, what some of the history of that is, and, and sort of what, what that means for how you think about this as a policy.
3: I think historically, it, it has been the solution to to deal with disability, you know, a, a wide variety of individuals, including people with similar disabilities that I have were sort of hidden away in in institutions because, one, the society was not ready to deal with disability. Two, there were no employment opportunities for these individuals. So the only way to keep a roof over their heads was to live in these group homes, live in these large warehouse institutions uh, that that provided this, quote-unquote, care. And, you know, these places were just rampant with abuse, whether it was physical, uh, sexual, you know, and neglect, because, you know, oftentimes these institutions didn't hire the right people and they didn't hire enough people. It also restricted the individual's ability to have any independence, right? So there were rules and timelines and schedules and et cetera, because again, there's not enough employees to go and provide one-on-one care for somebody, and and make sure that they were given the same opportunities as anybody else. So it really restricted people's ability, particularly disabled people's ability, to have any type of life. And so, you know, after the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, which basically gave disabled people a very fundamental right to their own livelihoods. That provided sort of the groundwork towards getting people out of institutions. But unfortunately, there were still issues of people getting warehoused into these giant group homes and in uh, hospitals, etc. And so there was a little known court case that that came about, that ensured that that individuals with disabilities were able to have this basic statement that said they had a, a right to the least restrictive environment, right? And so what happened was was that okay, a bunch of different institutions got closed, but unfortunately during that time there wasn't a ton of expanded finances towards funding services within the community. And so when COVID happened, and also when we've seen some of these natural disasters happening, and the people most affected by these had been individuals who have been stuck in institutions. So we've seen a huge number of individuals catching COVID and dying from COVID, And then, you know, during Hurricane Katrina, we saw all those stories of individuals being left behind in these floodwaters and dying, uh, even being, quote unquote, euthanized in settings like these because they people just weren't providing the care and there weren't resources to help get them out. These are the most vulnerable people in our communities, and we're leaving them to basically wither and die in these institutions and not providing them a basic standard of care.
2: We need to take a quick break. But when we get back, I want to ask about Joe Biden and Democrats plans to reform uh, how we pay for long term care so that hopefully we're warehousing fewer people and, and giving people lives with dignity.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
2: And we're back. Still with me is Mia Ives-Rubli, a longtime disability rights activist and director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. We're talking about long-term care today. So, Mia, Medicaid doesn't cover everyone who needs it. It varies dramatically from state to state. It's biased towards care in institutions that can be horribly abusive, and it's really underfunded. Uh, Seems pretty bad. All told. So so what does Joe Biden want to do to fix this?
3: Let me just give props to all of the disability advocates who really pushed all of the presidential candidates to have some type of statement on expanding home and community-based services, because this is one of the biggest issues within our community is that and and gaining economic security, right? Which is all just tied up in, in one little lovely role. But that push really made the Biden campaign propose... 400 billion dollars over 10 years in the, his Build Back Better plan to expand home and community-based services. That was huge. That was a, a great first step. So when Biden came into office, he proposed the American Rescue Plan, which you know uh, provided and expanded 10 percentage points um, for the federal matching rate, which is the FMAP. Um, and that would go from April of 2021 to March of 2022. And then what happened was was that Senator uh, Bob Casey and Representative Debbie Dingell actually created an act called the Better Care, Better Jobs Act, which basically would make the 10 percentage points uh, of FMAP permanent. Uh, so it would increase that. And then it would also provide, you know, how when I was, talking about earlier how people have to basically become poor to become eligible for services. It would permanently authorize protection against forcing people into impoverishment. So it would open up the gates for people who are eligible for home and community-based services. Lastly, it would also help with the, a little program called Money Follows the Person program, which allows and supports individuals as they transition out of nursing homes. And congregate settings, right? And so it provides things like rental assistance for the first month or so. It can help set up gas and utilities. It can help provide training to caregivers, et cetera. So it provides some of those transition services and helps push individuals from congregate settings into the community. So that's what the Better Care, Better Jobs Act is. Uh, It would also provide extra funding uh, towards home and community-based services. So then the Build Back Better Act came about, and the folks that were in charge of the Better Care, Better Jobs Act pushed for many of the provisions within that act to be included in the reconciliation bill, which is the Build Back Better Act. (laughs) And where we are currently is is that the House has requested $190 billion in funding and would say be about 7% of FMAP, which is a little below what we were asking in the Better Care, Better Jobs Act. Um, Senator Casey and Representative Dingle are still pushing for at least $250 billion.
2: So yeah, I... As you said earlier, so much of this comes out of of decades of advocacy in the disability and in elder communities. And I know you worked on a plan with Elizabeth Warren's campaign in the primary that was that was really a landmark in in terms of how expansive and uh and sort of transformative it would be. Um so walk me through how either the 400 billion Biden wanted or the the 190 billion that that the House is currently weighing. How does that fit into sort of the dream vision that the people in the disability community have been pushing for or, or sort of like the maximal ideal world policy?
3: The disability community is just asking to reduce the barriers to to entry into the quote-unquote American dream, right? So individuals are asking for support to be able to live within their communities. And that, you know, $400 billion will help get individuals off those wait lists means that individuals in their family are able to return to work, return to their daily lives, and be able to to provide the amount of care and assistance that they need for their family members. So it, it affects so many different individuals, and providing that $400 billion would basically affect three 2 million seniors and uh, disabled people and provide needed services just to be able to live within their communities. And I think what people don't understand is, is that providing this sort of amount of money will actually eventually save the American government and state governments quite a bit of money. So we're looking at home... Based care, if we're looking at over a year, the average cost of providing care within a home or community setting is about $26,000 a year. When we're looking at congregate settings, we're looking at $90,000. So that is a huge difference in spending. So eventually, we would actually be saving Medicaid an extensive amount of dollars in providing care in the community. And that would mean that we could get many of these individuals off the wait list and save money in the long run and actually increase wages for individuals who are providing this care.
2: So you mentioned earlier that the Better Care Act would eliminate this this policy where you basically have to spend yourself into poverty to qualify for, for Medicaid. How would it do that? What changes to Medicaid would it make so that that you no longer have to sort of impoverish yourself to, to qualify for services?
3: So it would change the eligibility requirements, right? And so individuals wouldn't have to take into account their spouse's income. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. You can either increase the asset and income limit, or you can get rid of that. Now, some states already do that. I was talking about New York and Maryland. Some states, they already say, you know, if you have a child with a disability, we aren't going to take into account the parent's income amount, right? And so it means that individuals, children are able to receive those services because that they have a disability and they have this significant need, right? That's all we're asking for for all of the other individuals who who require these services in order to be able to live within the communities.
2: This has come up a, a, a few times in our conversation, but, but Medicaid is very much a state-federal program. So much of this this funding is is about changing the federal match to state funding. And I think one concern that that many listeners might have, and that frankly I have with this is that. A lot of states just don't want to provide these kinds of services to, to their their citizens. We saw with sort of the health coverage, health insurance aspect of Medicaid, that even when the federal government was paying full freight, a lot of states like Texas and Florida wouldn't take the money and wouldn't help low-income citizens get health care. What protections do we have uh, or, or what protections could be put in place to to ensure that that people in, in states that might be hostile to these kinds of programs are, are still benefiting from this injection of, of funding and, and sort of reforms to the system?
3: Unfortunately, there's not a ton of provisions that we can do to, to force states to take up the provisions, as we've seen with sort of the expansion of Medicaid uh, and the fight to expand Medicaid in states that have not wanted to expand it. However, the things that we can do is really talk about the financial incentives on why you would want to do such things and how this affects people across the political spectrum, right? So there's a, the, those are the two aspects that we are really trying to push is, is that one, we are saving a ton of money by allowing individuals to get on home and community based services, right? Two is, you know, It affects people across the political spectrum. People get disabilities no matter if you're a liberal or a conservative, right? We are going to see more and more people who are going to need these services as boomers become eligible for the services as we are seeing long-haul COVID symptoms cause significant disabilities for individuals, uh, including balance issues, including memory loss, etc., and then lastly, we are seeing that across the spectrum, it's a very popular proposal. Mm. We are seeing individuals across the spectrum who, who react positively to the Better Care, Better Jobs Act and to uh, the Build Back Better plan. And so all of these should help persuade states who may be a little reluctant to receive those services and increased funding.
2: So we're going to take another short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and what their sort of insistence that the, the spending bill has to shrink could mean for long-term care and and for disabled and elderly
1: people.
2: So, Mia, Joe Manchin has been making some noises like he doesn't want to spend anything over $2 trillion over a decade. Uh, I think sort of the initial bid was something like $7 trillion. Bernie Sanders was talking about that early on. Then it got down to about $3.5 trillion. Sometimes Joe Manchin has said as low as $1.5 trillion. And so I'm, I'm curious what what do you think that will mean for this long-term care proposal, since there's a lot of other things in the bill, child tax credit, climate, pre-K, child care, paid leave, all, all of which are important too, and, and also of which are important to, to people with disabilities as, as well. So, so how do how do you make sure that the pay, that uh, long term care has a role within that package when when there are these kinds of pressures on it?
3: So, you know, I think what is really important, as I was saying previously, is to understand that home and community based services affects a huge amount of individuals that we have seen that they are some of the most vulnerable individuals in our communities. They have been significantly impacted by COVID, particularly affected by living in congregate settings and dying from COVID, seeing their care providers who are also dying from COVID or uh, contracting COVID. We are seeing that these individuals are at significant risks when we're looking at climate change, we're looking at all of these other issues that affect them in particular. And we're also seeing, you know, in West Virginia alone, there are, I believe, 1,200 people who are still on wait lists in mansions, home alone. And so, you know, understanding how much this would affect a huge proportion of individuals, not only disabled people, but their family members and the care providers, this creates its own sort of significant improvements to to the communities that they live in. And so, you know, we're really trying to focus and hone in on the fact that the increase in home and community-based services is one good for the economy, Two, is good for public health sake. And three, is just going to help a lot of ton of people in his state alone.
2: Yeah, one one interesting thing about this debate to me is that there's been a neglect outside of disability rights circles that, that I follow of the issues sort of on either side. So like the child tax credit has gotten a ton of pushback from people like Joe Manchin and a ton of support. Stuff like climate, uh, people have been jockeying over a lot. He and cinema just seems silent on on long term care. Do we have a sense of of if there are like cleavages among the Democrats about this? If if this is something that's splitting them, or is it something where they're just distracted by other issues, and and so this this hasn't become a a big uh, point of contention quite yet?
3: I think all of the the Democrats and even some Republicans understand the importance of home and community based services. Partially, again because it's such a popular thing to do. I don't think there's going to be a question about whether it's going to be included in the bill. The question is, is how much? And that's where we're really trying to sort of figure out where we can land in terms of the funding aspect of it. And that's a very important part of figuring out if this is going to work.
2: And, and how much of the sort of structural changes to the plan, like making sort of home and community based services sort of available and, on the same basis that, that institutional services are or uh, eliminating or, or, or changing asset requirements, is that doable in budget reconciliation or what that requires or changes outside this process?
3: Some of the things we can't make adjustments to and would require to do outside of reconciliation. I think that's partially why the funding areas and and suggestions on, you know, changes to to state plans are all easily done in reconciliation. Um, I think some of the, the more major changes would likely require more significant legislation.
2: For, for people who are interested in this but might not have, have a lot of background, um, are there any sort of resources or readings or, or organizations you would recommend people visiting or, or reading up on um, to, to get more informed on both this proposal and home-based care generally?
3: There's a couple of areas that I would suggest. There is a state-by-state guide through the Senate's Committee on Aging that has state-by-state estimates on how much the better uh, Care Better Jobs Act would have on on each state in particular and on nationally. So it estimates how many jobs it would affect. It estimates how many individuals on wait lists, um, and it provides how many individuals would be affected by the act alone. So that's a great way to get an understanding of how it will affect your state in particular. The second place that I would really suggest folks look into is actually the, the Urban Institute. It has two really, really excellent reports on home and community-based services. One of them talks about sort of what are the different options in terms of the the level of uh, financing of, of the program. Um, so it talks about three different options in terms of spending levels and, and how it would affect each service in particular, including talking about, you know, wages, and it talks about what kinds of services that they could improve upon, et cetera. And so that's a really good uh, report talking about the, just sort of what are the choices that, that, um, that uh, Congress has in order to figure out the, the spending level. So those are the, the two areas that I would really highly suggest people take a look at.
2: Mia, thank you so much for joining us and explaining these issues.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you all bringing up the topic of home and community-based services. It is a personal issue for me and something that I care really deeply about.
2: It's it's a personal issue for me and my family too, and, and the pleasure is all ours. Mia Ives-Rubley is a longtime disability rights activist, a co-organizer of the Women's March and director of the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Our producer at The Weeds is Sophie LaVonde, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor, Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more Weeds content by signing up for our newsletter. Go to Vox.com slash Weedsletter. As always, we'll see you back here on Tuesday. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.